Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to be joined by Carolee Kunz, who is the managing editor at Crooks and Liars. Uh, we're going to talk to her about Joe Biden's State of the Union address and, and what it kind of tells us about the current political scene. Uh, then we're going to be joined by New York Magazine's Eric Levitz to talk about this big debt limit fight again and um, why Republicans refuse to make any concrete demands. Take a hostage, you usually give a demand. They're not doing that. Turns out they have some good reasons uh, not to be forthcoming. But first, a brief <clears throat> public service announcement. Here at We've Got Issues, as has been the case in past cycles, we are not going to cover the 2024 campaign until there is a 2024 campaign. Uh, the election has not begun, contrary to what you may believe, uh, scanning the political news. Um, every poll you read at this stage is very close to meaningless. I'd say it's, a, it's meaningless, it's a waste of money to conduct, to conduct polls this early. And by the way, there used to be very little polling before Thanksgiving of the year before a presidential election. There'd be like two polls by Gallup the whole time before that. And it's just been the last, I'd say in the Twitter era, in the last 10 or 15 years that they've started to pump out these polls. Um, I'd say it's a waste of money to conduct polls this early, but that's only if you think about a poll as an, as a, an indicator of like meaningful public opinion, right? The value that polls this early have is in giving pundits and political reporters and analysts something to write about. And I think a lot of people don't understand how much like bad journalism is born from just needing to write something. It's difficult. I, I spent 18 years writing almost weekly about politics and sometimes you're struggling to choose something to write about. And sometimes you're desperate to figure out something to write about. And when you're desperate to figure out something to write about, that's often when you'll get like a lazy trend piece or a piece where you decide to make a big deal out of a poll uh, 19 months before an election. Uh, by the way, general election polls start to have real predictive value in the spring of an election year. So... A lot of people take our years-long election cycles for granted. They see it as normal, but it's important to understand that it is not, that most advanced democracies do not do this. They conduct their elections in the course of a few weeks or a few months. Japan's run for 12 days. French elections are like two weeks. Mostly um, these grinding, endless election cycles result from uh, constitutional constraints on regulating political speech and also kind of a, a cultural disdain for regulating political speech. Uh, most countries have quick election seasons because they establish campaign seasons, right? They set that by law. Uh, they say, yeah, you can't buy ads like political ads or hold rallies or do this or that before the season starts. So and then in other cases, in parliamentary systems, the election seasons are kind of constrained by like just the period of time that there is between one government 
one legislator legislature dissolving and then the, before the next one must be chosen, et cetera, et cetera. In any event, there are serious problems from these endless elections and um, problems that are much more serious than just annoying me. That's a small issue, small, modest issue, although it, it annoys the fuck out of me. But um, one is, you know, you get the this ennui. People get bored. They tune it out. It's hard to it's or they they just don't focus till the end, which is kind of normal. But the big thing is that our system guarantees that politicians owe much more to donors than they do anywhere else in in the democratic world. Um, first of all, in many countries, you get free advertising time. All candidates get an equal amount of free advertising time, stuff like that. We have overwhelmingly privatized campaigns. And then they drag on forever, and it costs an absolute fortune to run a two-year campaign in a country of over 300 million people. And our candidates need to consistently raise funds from before the beginning, right? That's the big thing. Just to have a hope of competing, then that becomes a political story into itself. Who is who is raising money? Who is failing to raise money? Who is resonating with donors? Blah, blah, blah. As I said, the campaign hasn't begun, but we are now in what political scientists call the hidden primary or the money primary. And the money primary or the, hit, the hidden primary is probably better, um, has nothing to do with people like you and me, right? This is the time when party actors, right? Party activists, donors, uh, etc., elected officials, influence who does and does not get into the field before primary voters get a chance to weigh in, before we get a chance to choose a party's nominee. Right. They basically help set the field. Um, and those party actors include a lot of different people, but donors are really the key group. And again, that's reflected in the reporting. Anyway, um, we will, of course, make occasional references to the upcoming presidential presidential elections. Like, don't don't tag me on Twitter and say, oh, you said we wouldn't mention it. Yeah, we're going to mention it, but we're not going to be focusing on the race until we start getting close to real primaries um, toward the end of the year. That's when we'll start acting as if there is a presidential race. And you are welcome. You're welcome. And on that note, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then be right back. She's a friend of mine in the apple pie and the sharpshooter. I'm in the overtime like a sharpshooter. I feel like I'm intruding. She's a friend of mine in the alibi and the getaway car and overdrive like a sharpshooter. I like the way you move. She's a real life wow. What's she talking about? I think I love her. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Welcome back. I'm happy to welcome our next guest after way too long. It's been way too long since we last spoke. Carolee Kunz is the managing editor of Crooks and Liars. Carolee, as you may know, uh, I am burned out. I'm 
tra- tra- dealing with burnout. And part of being burned out for me is that I, I can't stand to sit through stuff like the State of the Union address anymore, just because our politics are, are so deeply sick. And this is a tradition that I think dates back to another era. And uh, Carolee, you did watch it, and I appreciate that. Well, I'm glad to have done it. Actually, I was I, I wasn't looking forward to it either, and I was uh, actually pretty amazed at the end of it. Now, this is the thing: I didn't watch it. I did read a bunch of recaps on Wednesday morning. I read some clips, and I read your post on it, in which you wrote, and I quote: "As State of the Union speeches go, Joe Biden's will go down as one of the best I've ever watched." That is quite a statement. Uh, what did you find so effective about it? Well, for starters, um, he, it wasn't stilted. You know how so many of them are? You know, they're like like Obama, for all of his, uh, you know, great speechifying, yes. it was all soaring rhetoric and it was all sort of over, you know, it was up in the, the stratosphere somewhere. Yes. And um, Biden was like talking to all of us out here, right? I mean, he was certainly in a room full of Republicans and Democrats but the people he was talking to were us, um, you know, when he was talking about, for example, the capping the price on insulin, it really was sincere, right? That, you know, it wasn't enough to just do it for seniors, that we needed to do it for everybody. Well, as a mom of somebody, you know, a son who has type one diabetes and pays a fortune for insulin every month, this was a pretty, a pretty touching moment for me. It, it reached out of the television and got me and, and it was it was because he was just, he was human. He was like all the rest of us. That, that So that was part of it. And then the other part was just how masterfully he manipulated the Republicans through the whole thing. I mean, there's just nothing like it from the very beginning of the speech to the very end. He had them in a box and was outmaneuvering them every time he turned around. It was just masterful. Yeah, in your post, you suggested that Biden had rope-a-doped the GOP into standing for the social safety net. That was how you put it in your headline. Tell us about that moment. Oh, yeah, that was that was definitely one of the highlights. So he uh, essentially just came out. This was the other thing that was good. He didn't like call names. He didn't point fingers. He just stated facts. So he stated the fact that Republicans wanted Social Security and Medicare to sunset. And he said, you know, it's not all, it's some, but they're definitely, it's out there. And of course, that just elicited howls of, of you know, no, we don't want that at all. What are you talking about? Pro, you know, protests and they're on their feet. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is yelling liar. And, um, and so he says, you know, basically, oh, so then I guess you do want to, you know, Social Security and Medicare to go on. And by, by the end of this whole exchange, which which was something similar to, I think Charlie Pierce might have um, called it uh, similar to question time. <laughs> but by the end of that exchange... That's the British, in the British uh, Parliament, they have question time where they scream at the, at the Prime Minister. <laughs> right. So uh, he had them all on their feet, clapping for Social Security and saving it just the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, we all know, uh, we all know that um, they want to get rid of it, that it's it's one of their goals. And, yeah. and you know, they, they want to cut it into ribbons, what, however they can do it. 
So, uh, you know, we had the receipts and Biden had the receipts and he had the high ground on it. And it was just hilarious to watch them all protest and then eventually stand up and say, yes, OK, we don't want any changes to Social Security and Medicare. So he then he, he applauded them for standing for Social Security and Medicare. Um, but you mentioned that they they were freaking out and calling him a liar. In 2009, there was a far-right backbencher named Joe Wilson. He screamed mm-hmm. out, you lied during Barack Obama's first State of the Union address. And that became a pretty big controversy. Listeners yep. may remember back then, there were quite a few Republicans who took the line that, hey, we also hate Obama and everything he stands for, but... Uh, nonetheless, we don't think that it was appropriate to heckle the president of the United States during his annual address to Congress, right? right? Seems like a lot of Republicans were doing just that. And I guess this is just one small example of how the Republican Party has gone uh, kind of off the deep end since Trump arrived on the scene, that there this is kind of taken for granted. Let's listen to a short clip. This is CBS News correspondent Scott McFarlane just describing how guests in the gallery reacted to these these outbursts from Republicans, including but not limited to Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, you're, you're a liar. Let's listen. He is inside the House chamber. What was the reaction there when, for instance, we heard Marjorie Taylor Greene shouting at the president, calling him a liar? What you can't see on TV is the crowd in the upper level, these guests, these citizens who came with members of Congress. It was so jarring. You could see it in their body language. You could see it in their facial expressions. When the heckling grew in intensity and then grew in volume as the speech went along, when Marjorie Taylor Greene yelled liar, it was visibly jarring to some in the chamber. When a House Republican yelled, it's your fault, when President Biden mentioned the fentanyl crisis, it was jarring. It's hard to remember this at times, but Joe Biden was seen as a very sympathetic figure across the ideological spectrum, even among those who who disagreed with him. That's obviously shifted among Republicans. But after this, these outbursts, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker Kevin McCarthy, said on Wednesday that Republicans had, much like you did in your post, taken Biden's bait by heckling him. Uh, what do you make of this? Do you think Republicans kind of risk their standing among the vast majority of people who are outside of their hardcore base when they go uh, kind of vitriolic against Biden and his family? Yeah, I, I do think so. I mean, I, I think that uh, most people wouldn't behave that way. Wait, they they would be respectful and sit and listen, even if they disagreed. They would clap politely you know, perhaps not give a standing ovation, but they wouldn't be heckling from the back of the room. They wouldn't be calling liar and bullshit and all the other things that they were saying last night. And and I think that most people sitting at home were kind of horrified by that. Yeah. And, and, you know, for him, he's he is at home in that chamber. So for him, he's just smiling and, you know, <laughs> he, he's basically saying, let him show, you know, everybody what they are. And yeah. yeah. And even Kevin McCarthy was like, yeah, maybe that wasn't a great idea. He, he hushed them during the, uh, during the speech. Meanwhile, some Republicans, again, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she keeps coming up. Um, yeah. We're shown bringing white balloons into the chamber. This was of course a reference to, uh, what was referred to as the Chinese spy balloon. I don't know if it was even a spy balloon. Who knows? It made no sense to me that they 
like they have satellites. They don't need to, whatever. Um, we, but this balloon, Republicans and their media allies had spent literally like a week and a half freaking out about this balloon. Mm-hmm. Carly, let me ask you this as an aside. It's forgive me for this, but how do you think one even feigns outrage over something like that? Like, how do you even pretend that you're freaking out over this balloon? And and why did so much of the media go along with this idea that it was a big deal? Well, the, I mean, the media went along with it, it, it and the stupidest news cycle in history because they love controversy, right? So they feigned, the Republicans feigned outrage. And honestly, it was a, a no-win situation. Either they were going to feign outrage about how long it took to shoot the thing down, or they were going to feign outrage about it being shot down. Being over shot down, starting World War Three, right? Right. Starting World War Three with China at the same time as we we're starting World War Three with Russia. Um, mm-hmm. Do Russia? Do Republicans just understand this tendency of the media to cover any controversy in a way that Democrats do not? I mean, is this an asymmetric advantage, or do they end up? Because at the same time, you have polls showing that three out of four Americans think that the House Republicans are not focusing on issues that matter. Right. Right. And I don't think they are. I mean, I think that people with com- there's more people with common sense out there than we think there are. You think? You think that's yeah, true? I do. I do think so. Huh. Interesting. Even after the pandemic, you think that? Even after the pandemic, I mean, yes, the pandemic did mess up a lot, but. <laughs> and I shouldn't even say after the pandemic, it's still going on. But the right. pandemic has certainly, it, dis- it, it has dissuaded me from thinking that there's a large mass of reasonable people out there. Although maybe, maybe it should, maybe it should well, have Well, I mean, you look at the voting trends and, yeah. you know, in the midterms, if there weren't some reasonable people out there, we would have been. Yeah, you're right. Good point. What about Ukraine? So Aaron Blake wrote reported for the Washington Post. um, He was looking at public opinion that a a decent chunk. It's not a majority. A decent chunk of the Republican base is now in favor of trading some of Ukraine to Russia for a cessation of hostilities. Right. Which is something that almost all Ukrainians reject, by the way. It's not ours to trade. Right. Sean Hannity did a rant following the State of the Union address in which he referred to Ukraine as an adversary of the U.S. Um, Tucker Carlson is a staple on Russian propaganda programs almost every night, right? And yet, despite all of that, despite all of that, Biden got another bipartisan standing ovation on Tuesday when he said that Democrats and Republicans were united in their support of Ukraine and pledged to uh, stand with Ukraine for the long run, blah, blah, blah. How big is this rift, do you think, on the Republican side, not among the general public, but among the people who vote on things in Congress, elected officials? And do you see it growing into a bigger problem for U.S. support of Ukraine down the road? It could. Uh, I mean, it I think that, the, that Republicans are probably split right down the middle on this issue. And honestly, it comes down to who's been influenced by Russian influences over, you know, on the Republican side. Um, and by that, I don't mean nefarious. I mean, there are Russian lobbyists, you know, there are oil and gas lobbyists. There's a lot of uh, uh, reasons why they might stand with Russia. But it's appalling to me that any 
elected official would think that we had any say in Ukraine's sovereignty. In other words, why should we be encouraging them to give away parts of their country to Russia? That That's just crazy. Well, I mean, look, we are providing an enormous amount of military support to them. So mm-hmm. in the sense that we have, there's no question that we have influence. So, yeah. you know, you could say, well, we should be using that influence towards this end or towards that end, or we should not be using our influence towards this end or that end. Um, it's, I, I find it interesting that you have pretty much the entire far right, which usually sets the tone for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, freaking out about helping Ukraine. Uh, there's a lot of stupid talking points about, you know, we're protecting the border of Ukraine and not our own, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah. And yet, um, public opinion on that question of helping Ukraine has, in fact, remained remarkably stable. And um, you said they were they were evenly divided. It, there's this, there is a majority still of Republicans saying they're in favor of supporting uh, Ukraine. Uh, voters overall continue to hold that position by around a two to one ratio. I wonder why the wing nuttery is not seeping through more than it already is. I'm not sure if there's an answer. I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's an answer to that. I think it's, some of it's generational. I mean, there yeah. are people like me, for example, who uh, remember when Russia was definitely an adversary. You know, we remember the Cold War and diving under our desks and all that. Um, You know, so I'm not as inclined to be as open to Russia as some maybe younger people would be that that didn't grow up with that. I don't know. I I wonder also if it's because, you know, helping the idea of the U.S. helping democracies under siege by, you know, aggression has been so central to uh, American, well, American public information efforts, propaganda mm-hmm. since since forever, really, that it's kind of become part of our creed and something that you can't dislodge. Uh, it's something that's like so deep that you can't dislodge it with a year of Tucker Carlson rants. Yeah, I mean, that that absolutely could be part of, you know, the thinking behind that, too. I. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see how it goes along. Yeah, and I think that you know it's it is affecting um, the conduct of the war on both sides. I mean, it's clear that you know the Kremlin took it as a given that the West would grow weary and have a a short um, a short attention span, a short focus on supporting Ukraine and and. Would it would cave under, you know, inflation and energy prices increasing and et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, um, you have the Ukrainian government, I think, understands that they need to keep the momentum in order to justify the support that they're getting, just as they have clearly gotten the message that they need to tackle corruption in order to continue the flow of Western support. So right. these things right. have a far-reaching consequences. Indeed. Carolee Coons, I believe we're about out of time. I really want to thank you for watching the State of the Union address, so I did not have to. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.
<laughs> Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then be right back with Eric Levitz. Sitting, thinking, sinking, drinking, wondering what I do when I'm through tonight. Smoking, moping, maybe just hoping some little girl will pass on by. Don't want to be alone, but I love my girl at home. I remember what she said. Welcome back. Listeners who tuned in last week may remember that I quoted from a, a very good piece that Eric Levitz wrote for New York Mag about the GOP's ham-fisted effort to use the debt ceiling and, I should say, the extreme danger of the, the United States possibly defaulting on its debts to extract concessions on some fiscally impossible but also fuzzy demands. And I mentioned that maybe I'd see if we could entice Eric to join us to do a segment on this shit show on on this week's show and he was kind enough to offer his time so here we are eric is a features writer for new york magazine's intelligencer uh blog i guess the piece i mentioned was titled the gop can't remember why it took the debt ceiling hostage and listeners can check that out at newyorkmag.com where eric has some other good stuff including a new one up on that um stupid controversy over the chinese balloon eric levitz welcome back to we've got issues yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again for taking the time. Some have referred to this debt ceiling drama with a, a Seinfeld reference, calling it a standoff over nothing. Um, it can't really be over nothing, though, right? What, what's going on here? Yeah, so I I think that my understanding of, of why this is happening maybe begins with the fact, or at least the proximate cause is, that during the lame duck period after the midterms, Senate Republicans uh, and Senate Republican leadership, to its credit, decided that um, they simply weren't going to trust a five-vote House Republican majority to pass a spending bill, uh, a budget for the country in a timely fashion, and so that they would actually, even though they knew that their party would have more power come January to negotiate a budget, they were going to just cut a deal with Democrats, the terms of that deal being essentially that uh, that dem defense spending uh, increased more than domestic spending, whereas there'd kind of been a bipartisan uh, truce that held that these were going to increase or decrease proportionally. But in exchange for making that allowance for defense spending, Republicans went along with a, a pretty substantial increase in domestic spending overall. And so this uh, pretty standard, classic pork barrel, whatever sort of legislating, um, which conservatives are either ideologically or at the very least temperamentally uh, opposed to the I idea. I mean, temp uh, more temperamentally, right? It would seem more temperamentally. <laughs> I mean, with this bunch. And so it just this display of, of weakness, this uh, display of prioritizing 
bipartisan comedy over like maximizing the use of the party's power, which it you know could do if it had waited till January, basically created this impetus, especially in right wing media uh, or from right wing media to demonstrate strength, use power to its full potential uh, in the new Congress, leverage the fact that the debt ceiling is going to need to be raised this year to force Biden to implement Republican demands of some sort. Um, generally speaking, demands for a balanced budget or a you know cut to the deficit of some kind, although exactly how Republicans want to do that is uh, they're, they're kind of sheepish about articulating. I, you know, I want to, I, I just want to inject here that when the, when the Senate Republicans passed that omnibus spending bill with the Democrats in a lame duck session, right-wingers freaked out. And specifically, they were caterwauling about how there's no money for the wall and there's all this, it's all Democratic priorities. There's all this money for Ukraine, no money for the wall. This was like a talking point. And of course, this was nonsense. It was massively tilted towards Republican priorities with very steep increases in defense spending, a whole bunch of money for border security, and um, no significant increases for various domestic democratic domestic policies that Democrats tend to favor. So that's the the kind of the artifice, the artificial narrative that's driving this um, splenic assault from certainly the right wing base, which is making demands on uh, conservatives to make these 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 demands in turn to make these demands for cuts to uh, draconian cuts to the budgets. So as you pointed out in your piece, the reason that they're not forthcoming about what their demands are, you know, usually a hostage taking situation, you say, here, we've taken this hostage, we want a million dollars, we want it in a bag, we don't want any like, uh, it has to be in small bills. The Republicans have said that they are, they demand, you know, serious reforms, but they're loath to specify what they actually want. Um, and you, you, laid it out in the piece how their basic fiscal idea is just not workable given their lack of appetite for cutting military spending. And at the same time, you have Donald Trump over here telling them, hey, Republicans, you can't go after Social Security and Medicare. And and we're going into a presidential election in which he's probably going to differentiate himself in the Republican field. So why don't doesn't the actual numbers why don't the numbers add up? Can they even achieve what they're asking? Yeah, so to quell the rebellion against his bid for the speakership that lasted that full sort of week, uh, the first week of the year, McCarthy committed to the conservative hardliners that the party would adopt a, a budget resolution that balances the federal budget within 10 years, which is an extraordinary endeavor that would require cutting about $14 trillion of spending or, or raising that sum uh, in taxes, which obviously Republicans don't want to do. So on the one hand, Republicans, McCarthy has committed to balancing the federal budget. And, you know, when when that is abstracted from any kind of political consequence, voters like the sound of that. So it, it's fine to say, I want a balanced budget within 10 years. Uh, but then when we get into exactly, okay, how are you going to do that? 
there are a few Republicans now who are actually sort of comfortable with defense cuts to an extent. There's a little bit, a little bit of movement in that sort of isolationist direction post-Trump, but that is not the dominant position in the party. Um, and so there were some rumors about defense cuts for like a week, and then that was stamped out once the, the hawks in the party made their views known. Yes. And as you said, uh, there's pretty widespread nervousness about coming out for Medicare or Social Security cuts. Republicans would like to do that, but they would like a, a Democrat to feel compelled to, they basically want to go back in time to the 2011 Pete Peterson sort of moment when the mainstream thinking within the Democratic Party was that whatever Republicans' machinations were, the deficit was legitimate crisis. Social Security and Medicare were legitimately uh, unsustainable and you know very serious people needed to get together and do reforms. They want to be able to nudge along a, a Democratic president who will take ownership of the cuts and then run against them in four years uh, as defenders of Medicare, as, as Paul Ryan and Romney actually did in 2012, uh, shamelessly. Um, they don't really want to make a real big partisan push for gutting social programs that you know their disproportionately older base really relies on and that are overwhelmingly popular. And Donald Trump has reinforced this timidity uh, by, as you say, uh, taking ownership of the position that he is the kind of Republican that does not tolerate cuts to Medicare or Social Security. Um, so then you take defense, Social Security, and Medicare off the table. Their position on Medicaid is a little bit more ambiguous. They say no entitlement cuts and Medicaid is an entitlement, but they tend to always say no cuts to Social Security and Medicare and never say Medicaid. And of course, under Donald Trump, they tried to, to cut Medicaid by a trillion dollars. So it's, it's unclear, but it, they're at least not coming out and saying that they want to cut Medicaid, which, you know, not only does that hurt low income Americans, but uh, older Americans often get long term care through Medicaid. So it still has the problem of, you know, going after benefits that are enjoyed by the older Republican base. Also um, keeps rural hospitals afloat. Exactly. Yeah. And rural hospitals need uh, Medicaid uh, or else they would have many patients who are unable to pay their bills at all. And, yeah. and they were told. Um, so you take all of that off the table and, uh, you know, you, to bu balance the budget in 10 years, you'd have to cut every other spending program by 85%. Um, which would be like, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it would be like a failed state sort of situation. It, it, it's not possible. Um, so either in making a formal demand, McCarthy would either need to concede that uh, Republicans are not committed to balancing the budget or that they are willing to cut defense, Medicare, or Social Security, or that they want to, you know, wipe out federal investment in education in myriad, you know, projects that are bringing investment into red districts, et cetera. I mean, you, you just... I mean, this no is this is why they don't want to come out and say what they want, right? I mean, this, this is the, the fundamental problem with making a clear ask, is that then we get to pick apart what they're asking for. And if you look at what I consider kind of the overarching rule of American politics, it is that... Americans hate government in the abstract. And then when you start talking about the specifics, they're like, wait, I like that. I like I like the firefighting. I like the this and that, that. I like the social security. I like the, and even when it comes to, you know, I like the national defense. So, um, 
you've got that issue for Republicans. Obviously, the Biden White House would love to make this about, you know, them going after Social Security and Medicare and other popular programs at the same time. Um, You've also got this handful of Republicans who say they oppose lifting the debt ceiling under any circumstances. They just want to precipitate a crash. And there's a pretty good consensus, I think, among you know, economists and experts across the political spectrum, that if we were to have a miscalculation or whether whatever and actually breach the debt limit, it would likely trigger a a global economic uh, turndown. So you have this this rump group saying, yeah, we we we're gonna we're gonna vote against lifting it under any circumstances. To what? To what degree do you think that's driven by these lawmakers assuming that their consistents don't understand how the debt ceiling works and thinking that failing to raise it would simply, you know, decrease the debt and not have wider consequences? And to what degree do you think they themselves are clueless about the what the debt ceiling is? It's really hard to say, right? Because we've had this transition in the Republican Party over the past decade or so where it's really gone from, you know, uh, you have a, a political party that has a conservative, coherent sort of conservative agenda, and it has this propaganda arm that serves its ends, has its own sort of imperatives, you know, sometimes is more sensationalist and more anti establishment than the the party leadership would like, but but fundamentally is an adjunct of the party to a situation where increasingly it feels like the party is an adjunct of the media empire. Right. You know, uh, and where increasingly it's not, okay, Republican officials read the Wall Street Journal and National Review, um, and they know that the the Fox News and the Breitbart and the whatever else is, you know, for the rabble. Uh, to a point where it's the the, the Republican politicians themselves uh, have come up and are acculturated in the right wing fever swamp, and yes. that is their reality. Um, so, in individual cases, it's really hard to say. I think that it seems to me like probably is a combination of a calculation that uh, their vote is just not going to be needed in any scenario where you have. If you have legislation that's going to raise the debt ceiling um, that the Democratic Senate can agree to, then presumably there are enough Democratic votes in the House to agree to that agreement, too. So it's a free anti-establishment vote for you. So I think it's a little bit of that, probably a little bit of raising the debt ceiling. Just again, it just like abstracted from anything else sounds bad to voters. Oh, no. Why are we raising the debt ceiling? We don't want more debt. Debt's bad. Um, and then possibly for some, a genuine accelerationist ideological project that, you know, we need to bring the crisis so that the revolution can arise from it, you know, in, in the ashes of the American economy or the, the recovery, you know, after the, the financial crisis that defaulting on the U.S. debt could potentially bring, yeah. um, you'll, you'll see a new impetus to actually, it'll suddenly become politically possible to balance the budget or whatever. So I don't know. That would be my guess is a combination of those three things that it's a, it's a, you know, painless, uh, 
demonstration purity vote because fundamentally, if it passes, it's it's not going to pass uh, with their votes or not yeah. need their votes and, and those other things. I mean, you just can't underestimate the degree to which some of these lawmakers are are thinking, you know, that that raising the debt limit will help Hunter Biden hide his laptop or something, you know, bio lab. <laughs> so let's, I wanted to talk to you just briefly about public opinion. It's all over the place. According to a poll conducted in late January by data for progress, most people don't even know that this is going on. One in seven voters had heard a lot about the debt limit approaching and all of the um, kind of, um, you know, battles that are developing around it. If you just ask people if the debt limit should be raised or it should be raised without first enacting spending cuts, majority say it should not if you don't add any context. If you mention that the U.S. might default on its debt if the limit is not raised, the numbers shift. And then here's something that's interesting. A Washington Post-ABC News poll this week gave respondents a specific choice of linking spending cuts to the debt limit negotiation or dealing with the debt and negotiating cuts separately. And very large majorities favored separating those two things. So not doing um, hostage taking around the debt limit itself. Those numbers were consistent with what Data for Progress found when it asked a similar question. And this is all similar to polling from earlier uh, Republican hostage taking during the Obama years. Back then, they also found that people were like, no, we shouldn't raise the debt limit. And then if you said, wait, should we connect raising the debt limit to they back then it was abolishing abolishing Obamacare or Simpson Bowles, the social security, Medicare cuts. Um, back then they also said, no, keep these things separate. Um, the Biden administration is full of Obama veterans. Are they making an effort to exploit this kind of dichotomy in public opinion? It's, I mean, it seems like they're trying to Biden has been really adamant um, in throughout and in, in reiterating the state of the union uh, address that I'm interested in sitting down with Republicans and talking about our different ideas for, you know, reducing the federal deficit and, and our fiscal future, but this should not be done um, under the threat of, of default. So he's been pretty clear on that. Uh, and, you know, it is reassuring that that idea seems to, to have appeal among American voters. I, I think that it's important for, you know, those of us who are paying a high level of attention to politics on a daily basis, you know, to understand that we are freaks. Uh, most of the American public just is not as tuned into the not only the minutia of legislative wrangling in D.C., but but even the broad strokes of it. I would say, and so I just don't think that uh, public opinion on the debt ceiling is particularly firm at all. You know, I, I think it's very malleable. I don't think people have really considered ideas about the propriety of of, of these, you know, negotiating or, or what what a default even means or or what have you. Um, I do think that the the basic problem that Democrats have had here and the reason why this whole fight is happening, um, I mean, the reason why this whole fight is happening is because Democrats refuse to raise the debt ceiling to a gajillion dollars while they still had full control of the government last year. They had another reconciliation bill that they could have done yeah. uh, to do that. And they didn't do that because Joe a, Manchin, basically, because I think probably not alone, you know, I think moderate Democrats 
think about the 32nd spot where the Republican opponent says, you know, uh, so-and-so voted to raise the debts, to abolish the debt limit or to raise the debt limit to more than $100 trillion or something. Right. And this reinforcing the stereotype that the public has about, you know, spendthrift liberal Democrats that whatever. And, and so it's that fear of that general stereotype of, of, of spending too much that that has kept Democrats from just doing what they needed to do last year. Um, so I think that that's like the general public opinion thing that Democrats are always trying to navigate here. Just the fact that in isolation, the phrase raise the debt ceiling is really unhelpful for the reason that you suggested. Yeah. Symbolically in the abstract, Americans don't like big spending, um, but they like sp particular programs. Well, when you're voting on the debt limit, you're not voting on any particular program. You're just voting to pay the bills and to raise the debt. So they just, you know, sort of freak out about aligning themselves with that. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the big public opinion challenge. Well, I think it was a massive self-owned, massive own goal to not raise the debt limit when they had the chance. It was a small group of Democrats. Yes, it wasn't just Joe Manchin, but most Democrats, I think, wanted to do it. Um, but Biden certainly didn't expend any political capital towards that end. He didn't seem particularly interested in doing that. So... Um, you know, this this is all based on that fear of their own shadow to one degree, to one extent, but it's also a reflection of I think some uh, big structural problems that they have in in this media environment. I think the press has failed to convey to the public how aberrant this coercive style of government really is. You know, I don't think there's been a uh, they've done a good job. Uh, conveying that for most of our history, the debt ceiling was just routinely lifted uh, to accommodate the spending that Congress had already agreed to. And I feel like this is an area where a lot of journalists and analysts have come to take it for granted that the Republicans would do stuff like this, even as they'd be shocked and appalled if Democrats had tried to do the same thing, right? There's that fundamental asymmetry. A lot of us in the media have decided that it's normal for Republicans to throw these temper tantrums if they get any power at all. And um, so we stop saying this is a crazy way to do this. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that I think the media environment overall is a little bit better than it was in a little bit. 2011 and 2013, but it's yeah. still, it's very hard to, yeah, before, fundamentally, there's no way to describe the situation without sounding... Um, like liberal, like you're a liberal, yeah. like you're a feverish liberal. Yeah. Is you know obscene, so it just yeah. it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eric Levitz, I believe we are about out of time. I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I know we went a couple minutes over. Uh, no problem. I'd also like to thank Carolee Coons and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternate and Raw Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Mastodon at Joshua Holland. Uh, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I would like to thank all of you fine people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. <laughs>